0: Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm David Padil, and in this episode I'm joined by a very special guest. He's a Scottish crime writer, best known for his Inspector Rebus Novels. He's received an OBE for services to literature. He's one of the most popular authors of the last hundred years. He is, of course, Ian Rankin. Hello, Ian.
1: Hi there. How are you doing?
0: Uh, I'm fine, thanks for having me. You came down from Edinburgh just this morning for Uh, this.
1: Yeah, I arrived specially clutching my goodies with me. Well,
0: yeah, you've brought, as people do on the podcast, a number of objects that... For you, would you say these are definitive about
1: who you are and who you are as a writer and a person? Or are they just what you found this morning? Yeah, yeah. I think they're mostly formative. I think it's a mix of the formative, the informative, and just sort of uh, things that personally mean something to me.
0: Excellent. Well, we'll get on to those. But we're here to talk about a short story. That you've written. Now, it's quite an unusual thing because it's not a short story that you're publishing in a collection. Tell us what it is, in fact.
1: The Death Watch Journal was commissioned as a book at bedtime. So it's Um, an original
0: story for Radio 4.
1: Yeah, and I thought, well, that's interesting because normally what they do is take a book and fill it it, to fill the five 30-minute slots this time they said can you give us an original story that will be in five parts mm. and I mean that's a challenge but I do enjoy a challenge because you know it can't be too complex mm. um, because people are coming back to it night after night at bedtime or, or as near as darn at bedtime you've got to kind of lay the plot out but then be able to refer back to it without people going well hang on a minute who's he again yeah
0: give us a very brief sense of what the Death Watch Journal is about
1: well, well I got the idea from a, another novelist called Denise Mina and she had a book set in 1950s Glasgow and it's based on a true story and the guy is done for murder and he's waiting to be executed and he's watched over by specially um, chosen warders and they keep a death watch journal which mm. is a kind of day-to-day diary of his what he's up to mm. how he's eaten how he's feeling is he going off his head and This yet? is a real thing that, that It was a real thing happened. a real thing that, that, that happened and the last execution in Scotland would have been about 63 so I decided to set my story in 62 and have this Totally fictitious case of this man who is done for murdering his wife. He's waiting in a condemned cell. He strikes up a relationship with the warder and the warder starts to doubt his guilt. Mm.
0: Yeah. When you started to write it, did you think, OK, this is a radio play in prose or this is a short story or does it feel like a bit like screenwriting? How did it feel as a form?
1: The producer, Bruce Young, said to me, Luca it isn't a play. We, can't, we can only have one voice, one narrator, that's it. And although a narrator can do a range of voices, you can't have sound effects and stuff, so you can't think of it in that way. So I did think of it as a, a longish short story. Right. Um, and I was very fortunate that I went on a really terrible holiday at the summer. I went for a very wet 10 days on a cruise around Norwegian fjords. Beautiful. It would have been if we could have seen them, but right. the weather was so bad that right. you couldn't even see the tops of them. Okay. Uh, and so it was horizontal rain, mist, low cloud, everything else. So I've taken my laptop computer with me and I Isn't sat in perfect, the library. Though? Yeah, I know. I sat in the library each day, <laughs> opened up my laptop and thought, well, I might as well do some work. Yeah. So I basically wrote the, the, the Death Watch journal, In six or seven sittings. Right. And then just cropped it and cut it, because it had to be exact. That's the problem with having 13 minutes dead, is that there were bits Bruce would come back and say, this bit's a bit too long, what can Mm. we cut from this bit?
0: Well, In terms of what you were saying about people coming back to it and therefore making it not too complicated, is there going to be a previously on the Death Watch Journal (laughs) thing on Radio 4 or not?
1: I don't know. The one time I did something similar to this was a serial for the New York Times, and it was called Doors Open. And my publishers liked it, and they said to me, could you beef this up? Could you just inject it with hormones and turn Mm. it into a full-length novel? Which I eventually did. So the Death Watch Journal at the moment couldn't be published. I think it'd be too short to be published in anything other than as a novella in a collection of short stories. But there's nothing to say I couldn't use the characters at greater length Mm. if the occasion arises. You've written a lot in a lot of different forms. You've written
0: plays, you've written graphic novels, you've written and obviously, the stories and the, and the novels. Is that something that you think, OK, I've had an idea that suits that particular form, or did you just want to try writing different things? It's
1: more that people approach me and say, do you fancy doing this? And right. go, oh, that would be a challenge. You know, like DC Comics got in touch and said, hey, we've noticed from your interviews that you're a keen fan of comic books. Would you like to try writing one? Right. Yes please, Of course. I've waited 40 years for this yeah, uh, Why would you say no? You know. that. Uh, they said you can do a, a new character or an existing character And I was a big fan of John Constantine Hellblazer Who's like a private eye and can he part human and part supernatural being And so I thought okay I'm going to give this guy the proper private eye treatment Right. And that was great and there was stuff you can do in a graphic novel you can't do In a rebus novel for example Like have things happen in hell yeah. Uh, which I did, so that was great fun and then Scottish Opera years ago said hey, do you fancy writing the libretto for a short opera and I went, yeah, well, I'll give it a go These are brilliant phone calls Yeah, are, they? <laughs> They're really I, mean, brilliant. I mean, I think they've driven my publisher a bit mad because they would yeah. rather I was just sitting writing Rebus books over and over again ever, but It's nice to stretch yourself
0: Have you ever written the TV or any film adaptations uh, of your own work?
1: No, I did try doing a film script with a friend of mine who's a screenwriter and I didn't really enjoy the experience I'm not a team player Mm. You know, when you're a novelist, you get to play God. Mm. Until my publisher sees the book when it's finished, they've got no idea what they're getting. Mm. Whereas all along the way with TV and film, people are interfering. Mm. They're asking you to change things. Another thing is they want to know everything that's going to be in the story before you start working it, and that's Mm. not how I work. No. I find the story out as I go. When I started the Death Watch Journal, I had a vague notion of where it might go. Did I think the guy was innocent? Probably, but I wasn't 100% sure. How involved was the warder going to get in his life? How much of a detective was the warder going to become? When I started the story, I didn't know that. Mm. I mean, Rebus, when Rebus was televised, and it had two incarnations. In the first incarnation, it was two hours on ITV, so it was an hour and 45 minutes. Laterally, they decided to do it as one hour per book, which Mm. is 45 minutes. So it's a 45-page script. So the first thing you do is throw everything away, except the title, and then start from the ground up. And I'd made the decision early on that I wouldn't watch any of the TV because I didn't want specifically actors interfering with my characters, you know, or getting into my head mm. and changing what was already in my head. So I never did watch it. But You I never I, watched it ever? No, never. I've got the DVDs, but never okay. watched it. And I mean, I had a cameo in a couple of them, but right. I, I never watched one all the way through. <laughs> uh, they're hopefully going to remake it next year. And this time the screenwriter is aiming for six hours right. per story. So that would be lovely, because, you know... Some um, of the complexity can Well, can yeah, stay. I mean, I want some of that Scandinavian stuff. Yeah, Something yeah. like 10-hour, 20-hour for the killing. Come Definitely. on, give me some of that. Yeah.
0: Let's uh, dip into the Death Watch Journal, episode one. It's read by Jimmy Chisholm.
2: Thomas Scott closed the pages of the Death Watch Journal and placed the pen alongside it with a sigh before rubbing his hands across his eyes. He had written that the prisoner had been subdued but eaten well. He had asked for sugar in his tea, which was a first, his reasoning being that he would never get the chance otherwise, unless sugar was provided in the afterlife. What Thomas Scott didn't say in the course of that day's entry was that the prisoner, William Telfer, had then gone on to talk about hell, wondering if there'd be tea served there or sugar to go in it. Only for those who don't like it, Scott had responded, and what makes you think you're going to hell anyway, Bill? Aren't you always telling me you're innocent? Telfer had stared up at the jailer then, his eyes like blue marbles. Innocent of our murder, Thomas. But I've done enough bad things in my life to see me descend in that lift when the time comes. They'd known one another for a few weeks now. A crew of seasoned prison officers took shifts watching over the condemned to make sure he didn't do anything reckless prior to the ordained moment. Scott hadn't attended the actual trial until the final day, flanking Telfer with another warder as the jury's verdict was announced. Guilty, of course. That was an extract from
0: the Death Watch Journal by Ian Rankin, narrated by Jimmy Chisholm. Were you involved at all in the casting?
1: A little bit. He's an actor I've known and admired for a long time. He mostly does theatre work. He mostly works, I think, at the Lyceum in Edinburgh, so I've seen him in quite a few things. He's got a great voice. I mean, he's, he's he's a really good stage actor as well, but he's got a terrific voice. And for that story, he needed to do four or five... Characters, mm. and so there had to be a little bit of range. I tell you what also interested me about this
0: is, and I and I think Jimmy Chisholm's voice is very suitable for this. Is it's a period short story? Is that how much of a departure is that for you?
1: A big departure. You know, I'm not a natural researcher, mm. and for this, I did have to find out things like what happened in a court trial in the late '50s, early '60s when you were declaring a prisoner guilty and then condemning them. What wording would be used? Wonderful wording, actually. Is it like any black? hat that used to go in yeah. the judge and you, this is pronounced for doom
0: Yeah,
1: I'd have spent a, a wonderful couple of days in a library in Edinburgh going through old copies of the Scotsman. I'd specifically set the store I think 62 the year before the final execution so I just went back to 62 May, June, July and scrolled through the Scotsman newspaper looking at how much a car cost, how much did a house cost, yeah. what was in the news then and of course a lot of that stuff then got cut out for time constraints mm. so all this lovely research I did but they told me it might be, I've not heard the unabridged version yet, the audio version. They told me it might be going back in.
0: Well, it does feel like Edinburgh in the early 60s, I think. And I didn't it's... know
1: Edinburgh then. I mean, I grew up in a coal mining village 20-odd miles to the north, and Edinburgh was a luxury because my parents didn't have a car. I remember going through to see Peter Pan when I was a kid at Christmas, and Lulu, I think, was playing mm. Peter Pan or Tinkerbell. But, you know, it was a rare thing until I started university there in 78. But, I, you know, I go to the pub with friends who grew up in Edinburgh, and they've told me stories about old Edinburgh.
0: Um, you brought some objects, as I said at the start, and interestingly, because you just said that your parents didn't have a car. It is a car, your first object. Not not a real car. It's it not is a car. real
1: car. It's not a real... I'm going to hold it up to the microphone. Yeah. So you can hear the wheel shake. It's a Dinky Toys Spectrum Patrol car from um, Captain Scarlet. I used to collect these things. I used to have dozens and dozens of Dinky and Corgi cars and Okay, Where, vehicles. Are, they, where are they now? Well, most of them got turfed out, I think, when my parents died. Right. And I've got a few. I mean, I've got Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I've got the Monkey Mobile. OK, because my dad.
0: He's got dementia now, but my dad collected and sold dinky toys and corgi toys
1: for his whole life yeah uh, so none are minor w- kept, you'll see this I mean it's completely chipped it's and not bits mint broken. and rock. no really, I mean yeah. the aerial was missing from it and there's, there's cracks in the windshield and I, mean, I have
0: seen that car before though I mean both on the show and in my dad's collection yeah.
1: back in the day you drew it back you pulled it back and yeah. let it go and I was on a spring and it would, it would fly forwards but the spring's broken now as well so you
0: were a big Gerry Anderson fan I was a
1: huge Gerry Anderson fan I was a huge fan of comics I was a huge fan of kids TV shows like that they took you to another world and mm. they just they were just the most exciting thing. Mm. And I would get, I think it was Century 21 or something, was the comic that was based on a lot of Gerry Anderson's stuff, and yeah. or TV 21. And there'd be Joe 90, I would have Joe 90's car, and Batman, Batmobiles, and all kinds of great stuff. And it was lovely because it was, it was a fantasy world. Mm. And it was one I was very keen to get into. So I started yeah. not only reading comics based on TV shows, but then trying to draw the comics myself. So I'd get oh, okay. bits of paper and fold them in half and try and make comics. And Can I you would, draw? Are you good at drawing? I couldn't draw. Oh, you I could draw, draw stick stick people. Oh, right. Stick people with little speech bubbles. Right. And I would put free gifts on the front. You know. Free gifts? Yeah, I would make a badge out of a safety pin and a bit of sellotape and a bit <laughs> of cardboard, and I would stick it on the front and call <laughs> right. it a free gift, you know. Okay. And, and, and then try to, and sell these comics? No, I would show them to my parents. Oh, would, they'd, be, they'd be limited to one yeah. copy of each oh, I comic. See. Right. But I would have continuing characters and stuff yeah. and... Uh, and, you know, it was, it was my parents weren't great readers and there wasn't a bookshop in the village I grew up in. There was a library, which I used to haunt, but comics were cheap, affordable literacy.
0: You clearly were interested in stories and writing, but then why were you drawn to crime particularly?
1: I, I don't know that I was drawn to crime. I think it was drawn to me for some in some bizarre way, because I didn't read crime fiction when I was growing up. I didn't read it when I was a student. I was interested in the Scottish novel and there was a lot of the gothic in that, a lot of the supernatural in that, and things like Jekyll and Hyde, Robert Louis Stevenson's mm. novel, although it is specifically set in London, mm. is very much a story you know that could be set in Edinburgh and takes as part of its... Background: a guy called William Brodie, who was a real-life character who was a gentleman and thief and was eventually hanged in Edinburgh for his crimes. So this kind of idea of somebody embodying good and evil I was interested in. And I wanted to look at Edinburgh, I wanted to look at contemporary Scotland, I wanted to explore social issues, I wanted to look at good and evil. A cop allows you to do all of that mm. because a cop has access to every different layer of society from the people at the very top to the people at the very bottom. Yeah. And so this guy, Rebus, jumped into my head one day. And I wrote one book with them, and then I thought, well, that's that done. Had you written novels before that? I had two novels before that. The first one was never published. It was a black comedy set in a Highland hotel, and the plot involved the kidnapping of Norman Mailer by the provisional wing of the Scottish National Party. That sounds brilliant. I know, doesn't it? Please, nobody publish wanted it. it. Nobody wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> that never got published. But then I did another novel called The Flood, which was about growing up in Fife, and that was published by a very small independent press in Edinburgh. And then an agent came calling and said, have you got anything else on the go? And I said, well, I'm writing about this cop in Edinburgh called Rebus, and a Rebus is a picture puzzle. So I was being, you know, I was into... Postmodernism at the time, man, and deconstruction and mm. all that stuff, semiotics, and so I'm going to call this guy, he's basically Inspector Puzzle. But crime often, you know, yeah, he often hangs, hangs out with post-modernism. It does. A bit I mean, Umberto it's Eco it's and... a game that's being played. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, I was a huge fan of Umberto Eco's Name of the Rose. I thought yeah. that was a brilliant book. It is a brilliant book. Um, yeah. And yeah, you're right. I mean, a lot of sort of serious novelists have been very interested in the crime novel because it is the, you know, it is a Obviously, playing a game with the reader—it's a game between author and reader, yeah. which all fiction is. But yeah. it's kind of structurally there in a the crime novel.
0: Mm. Uh, you said recently, actually, that crime itself—you know—you're slightly worried that it might have a, a finite issue going on because real news is so bad now. Well, that, that a crime was... story is going to be killed <laughs> off. I assume that was kind of a gag.
1: You will be shocked to hear that there was a slight misquote in there. Yeah. You know, the, 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 that was, a, that was a, a, one answer of 15 to a very long QA that was sent by a, by a press agency. And what I was specifically talking about was the way the world is right now, mm. as we sit here. And I was like, well, cause Alexander McCall Smith, a near neighbour of mine in Edinburgh, the Mamma Ramotsway, number one de- ladies' detective agency, said his books took off in America before anywhere else, and the reason they did, he thinks is because of the 9-11 effect. After 9-11, a lot of readers were looking for a kinder, gentler world, a world that made sense, and a world where nice people did good things for each other. Mm. and so his books became a huge success. And so what I was referring to was the fact that maybe where we are now, with everybody terrified of war between America and North Korea and everything else that's happened in the rise of the right wing all across Europe, and people are maybe going to want to shy away from the kind of, serial killer novel and go for something that's a bit more kind of... About comforting. Nice, well, yeah, comforting, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah. uh, but in a good way. Yeah. I mean, not, you know, not just kind of... Not, it is true, I think, that at times of great despair,
0: escapism in film at least, uh, tends to be very popular, doesn't it?
1: Well, it's very hard to think how you can satirise what's going on right now. Yeah, uh, it's and, almost as a, impossible. and as a crime writer, I can't explain things until they have happened.
0: Let's have a bit more of the Death Watch Journal. Here Thomas thinks about what he will say to his wife about his new
2: charge.
1: He wanted to tell her
2: that they weren't monsters by the time they reached him. They were sad, bewildered, sometimes scared or broken men, usually of low intelligence, William Telfer, however, was different. He had left school with only the most basic qualifications, but he could read and write. He knew bits of his Bible and reams of Robert Burns. He had an easy charm about him, told a good story, and was unfailingly polite. His conversation was neither coarse in language nor crude in subject matter, which should have made the jailer's job easier. And it did, to the extent that he could relax a little. He never felt that his prisoner was about to fly off the handle or attempt to do away with himself. But it made it harder, too. He recalled another jailer who'd been on the death watch with a young woman who had poisoned her husband. She had committed the crime, no question, but only under severe provocation. An educated woman, a person of quality... She had embroidered as she awaited execution, handing the resulting piece to the jailer as if it were a restaurant tip. That was never a fair outcome, the jailer had told Scott. And it'll live with me. It'll always live with me. Older heads sometimes shared their wisdom. They argued that every warder was a custodian, nothing more. Sentence having been pronounced and the date for the execution set... Their job was to sit with the condemned, not like a priest or a friend, but as a guard. A guard, mind, not a guardian, Thomas Scott had been told. And if they've come to no harm at the end of each shift, if that shift has been managed without undue stress, then you've done all that was required. You can go home with a clear conscience, something they'll never have. That was an extract from the Death Watch Journal by Ian
0: Rankin. And I think that's a very important small clip, actually, because that idea of him wanting to tell his wife that they weren't monsters strikes at something which is very important, I think, in crime fiction that isn't straightforward crime fiction, something, if for want of a better word, literary about crime fiction, which is that the truth, of course, is always complex. You're dealing with evil, but evil is very unlikely, unless it's not a very good novel, to be a black-and-white evil.
1: Yeah, often in the real world, of course, it's quite mundane. Mm. I mean, I've been able to interview over the course of the last few decades a lot of police officers and professionals who've dealt with psychopaths, serial killers, uh, you name it. I mean, it kind of comes back to Hannah Arendt's thing about the banality of evil, about these people just being quite boring people. They're not exciting. They're not Hannibal Lecter. Mm. Very few Hannibal Lecters out there. In fiction, we want our monsters to be monstrous, almost as in fairy tale. We want to be terrified by Mm. them and we want them to seem larger than life and exotic, a la Hannibal Lecter. You'd much rather hang out with Hannibal Lecter than Clarice Starling, right? I Mm. mean, you know, but you'd make your excuses and leave at a certain point in the evening (laughs) before he started cooking, perhaps. (laughs) Um, You know, and that goes back to myth and fairy tale and folk tale that we're fascinated by things that terrify us and scare us. But in real life, these people commit these crimes for... Fairly mundane and sordid reasons. Oftentimes it comes down to the seven deadly sins. It comes back to greed and jealousy and lust.
0: And you just mentioned <clears throat> talking to police about psychopaths. Do you spend a lot of time in that netherworld <laughs> where I you have to know about I, that thing? I,
1: I, I don't really. I mean, if, if it's a specific thing I need to know, there are people I can talk to. And I do, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm loath to say I hang out with cops, but I do occasionally go out with cops um, for a drink or a chat. Um, I get invited to a lot of retirement parties in Edinburgh. Right. Police, police officers retiring, so I get a lot of stories from the '70s and the '80s and the '90s when it was a bit more like the Wild West than it is now.
0: Thomas Scott in this is a bit of a departure for you because, of course, he's an, he's not a detective, and yet he becomes a detective. There is a detective in the story called Hunter, but he's not a central role. This is someone who's trying to piece something together, but that's not his job.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there were all kinds of difficulties about this story. I mean, one of them is that I thought, well, it's got to be told in a very tight time frame how much can he do in the time allowed? You know, I I decided it's in five episodes, so basically, let's say this is five days in the life of this person who's about to go to the gallows. That doesn't give the amateur detective much time to make inroads into the case Mm. uh, and to come to some conclusions. What, the light bulb moment, I guess, was when I introduced him to someone who's a young woman who goes to lots of court cases just Mm. to fill her time, as people do um, right now. You know, people do. They go along to all the interesting cases, and they sometimes have to queue up, and sometimes they don't get into a very popular case. But, so she is an amateur detective. She's interested in, you know, whether the outcome was correct or not. And so she shares the burden with him and she can do some of the detecting when he's otherwise engaged. But she also expands the kind of moral landscape, doesn't she, of the story? Because that's one of the things that's really interesting.
0: In, in what is quite a short story, you know, um, and a complicated plot,
1: there's also a kind of
0: hinterland of what is going on mm. in two
1: marriages... Really? Yeah, I mean, he's in a sort of fairly loveless marriage or a marriage that doesn't seem to be going anywhere and he's not living up to his wife's expectations. And she's a young woman who's looking after her mother who's ill and so doesn't get out very often and might be a little bit strange, as we would one time have said. You know, quite an internalised character. And so you've got this this odd couple and suddenly they find themselves up against sort of gangland types and sort of thugs and bent cops and you name it. And, of course, it's another world to them. I mean, Thomas is one of these nice, safe people. That's why he's given the job of looking after the condemned, is because he's a safe pair of hands. And the hangman, when he comes to visit the prison, starts to see that maybe he's ceasing to be a safe pair of hands. and start, he's getting emotionally He's involved. basically getting a bit of free will. Yeah. He's getting a bit of free will and he's deciding, well, hang on a minute, you know, because what the hangman says basically is, look, your, job, you know, your job's done. This guy's been found guilty. You just have to wait and he's going to be hanged. Mm. and There's not much we can do about it. The sentence has been pronounced for Doom. I guess a lot of people would just have gone along with that. Mm. On a lighter note you've brought in for your second object a, 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 well tell us what it is. Uh, well this is, this is Lightness itself. It's Silver <laughs> Machine by Hawkwind. Yeah. One of the first singles I bought and this is the original single I've got it here and actually at some point I've sat with my watch and played the record and timed it. I've written on it 4 minutes 40 seconds Okay, and my name is on it Ian Rankin in case I take it to parties right. yeah. And and next to that it says bang your head against a wall tonight. Now why I've written that on the record I've no idea. It's a sort of Headbanging song. I mean, I, I wouldn't have it said is. it was
0: a classic head
1: headbanger, but a well, I mean, it's, bit. it's got a pile driving beat to it, yeah. not it? Yeah, <laughs> well, it's Lemmy <laughs> playing the bass, isn't yeah, it? and singing, and that led to a lot of kind of unpleasantness in the band. They didn't like that he became the star because he was meant to be just right. a bass player. Okay, but you brought this part well, because music's well, a big thing. Well, you know, yeah. I'm sitting there. I'm sitting in my bedroom in this mining village, Bowhill and I've got me comics, and I've got a few books from the library, and I've got the radio with Radio One, and I've got a Dancet record player, which is actually my big sister's record player. Yeah that my parents got with cigarette coupons. Mm. So I started buying singles. I would save up for singles and one of the first ones I bought was Silver Machine and it sounded like the sound of the future. Yeah. The synthesizers on it. Whoosh, mm. All that stuff that whoa this is another world it's a science fiction fantasy world. And it was creating images in my head. You know, it was it was painting pictures in my head of a world that could be. So it would take me out of this little box-sized bedroom. Yeah to explore new worlds. Music
0: is a big deal. You're in the 30th year of Rebus, it's won. Numerous awards have been translated into 36 languages, and yet I believe you say uh, that you'd rather have been a musician than a writer
1: most writers would. Yeah, I'd rather be a footballer, I think. Well, there you go. Yeah. And you'll meet footballers who say they would rather be painters and you'll meet painters who, <laughs> yeah. who say they want to be actors and actors who want to be poets. Yeah. Nobody's totally happy doing what no, they're doing, man. Of this course not. Story. You've got
0: uh, a punk band, haven't
1: you? I was, the... in a punk, I was in a punk band in 78, 79 called The Dancing Pigs, the second best punk band in five, mm. uh, after the Skids. Yeah. They were a long way ahead of us. <laughs> but I joined a band recently, yes, a bunch of men, mostly in their 50s, who should know better. Best Picture? Best Picture, we're called, and we have put out one single. Oh, so, have you? Yeah. Yeah, All actually, right. and it's
0: on red vinyl hey, what genre would you say
1: best picture is tough call I would say it's kind of like sort of a new wave band that existed in the early 90s the right 80s, early 90s. It's, got, it's got a new wavy feel to it sort of like wire well yeah but not that not that tense and edgy. Okay. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, one member of the band is Bobby from the Bluebells. Oh, really? So, so it's okay. melodic. Right. He's our one professional musician. He's the yeah. professional musician in the, He's letting us. I done. He's the professional musician in the band. So he's always after melody and harmony. What do you play? I sing. You well, sing? no, let's not say sing. Let's say vocals.
0: Okay. I'm going to go and listen to it, but before that, we're going to listen to a bit more from the Death Watch Journal uh, written by Ian Rankin. And here, Thomas wants to find out more about William Telfer.
2: Braidens was that kind of place. you need to go there ten or twenty times before walls started to be chipped away at. Hard men went there to sit in silence with their secrets, enjoying only odd moments of barked dialogue. The barman seemed to have been carved from stone, the premises constructed around him. He looked to Scott like he might be the only thing left standing after an atomic blast. On his second visit, the man had stared past him rather than at him, saying nothing as Scott ordered a half-pint and a whisky. Both drinks tasted adulterated. Complaints were doubtless few and far between. He had stepped outside on that second occasion and taken in huge gulps of tobacco-free air, turning up his collar and beginning to walk dejectedly towards the bus stop. Then a voice just behind him, "'I saw you in court, didn't I?' "'She was petite, maybe ten years his junior, "'rosy-cheeked and with a gaze that managed to be both friendly and steely. "'You led him away from the dock,' she went on. "'That's quite a coincidence, isn't it?' "'He hadn't quite stopped walking. "'What is?' he asked. "'She'd managed to get in front of him, "'was almost skipping as she tried to make him meet her eyes.' You took him to prison, she answered. And now you're drinking at his pub. So? Well that makes you part of the story.
0: An extract from the Death Watch Journal by Ian Rankin, and Gracie and Thomas at that point have just met in Braden's. Is Braden's based on a real
1: place in Edinburgh? No. You know, you can imagine it though, right? You yeah, can no, imagine totally a can sort imagine it. of uh, you know, can kind a of working class men's drinking hall? Mm. where the cigarette smoke would disguise the less savoury smells Mm. and full of disappointed hard men and people with grudges and chips on their shoulder. These places don't just exist in Scotland. Um, They're not, Not as many of them as round as they used to be. I mean, sadly for me, I mean, Rebus, my detective, drinks in the Oxford Bar, which is a fairly equivalent place in Edinburgh and a real pub that I still go into from time to time. But even that is a lot nicer than yeah. some of the places I'm writing about in this. I just, you know, I thought about early 60s. Um, Social clubs and that sort of working and, men's clubs and, yeah, don't really exist anymore, do they? No. When I think about it, it almost reminds me of, kind of, there's a few Glasgow bars that are still a bit like that once you get outside the city centre. And mm. maybe there's a few more of those places still exist in there. I, I, we're going to talk about Willie Marcovanni in a minute. I remember interviewing him once in a bar in, in Glasgow, which I won't name. But it was after the smoking ban and he said, I've just got to go outside for a cigarette. And the barmaid said, why? You can smoke in here. He went, no, there's a smoking ban. She went, look around you. And the place was full of ashtrays. (laughs) And they just didn't give a toss about the cops coming in. The cops were, you know, there was a sign on the toilet door saying, no drugs in the toilet, please. No dancing on the tables, no drugs in the toilet.
0: (laughs) Actually, your next object is relevant to this because it is a map.
1: I brought an 80Z along right from the get-go with Edinburgh. You know, I've I've always had maps of Edinburgh, street maps, bus maps, pinned up to the wall. I lived in France for six years, and I would have photographs and postcards of Edinburgh and maps pinned up to the wall. It's just one of these things where I can sort of flick through it and go, where's good for a murder? Mm. Where have I not used yet?
0: I know Edinburgh pretty well because I've been to the festival many times, and one of the things about reading your work is I think you have brought out this gothic quality, the city. Obviously it's a beautiful city I think it's probably the most beautiful large city in Britain, but it is also got a sort of brooding... It's got an edge to it Yeah, yeah, yeah it's got yeah. An edge yeah. to it. I
1: mean I think that's the whole thing, David, is when I started writing, you know I'd arrived in Edinburgh as a student and what I was seeing was student Edinburgh, which is a different Edinburgh from the Edinburgh lots of other people exist in but I was aware that there was this other Edinburgh that the tourists and the visitor weren't seeing or the kind of casual arrival in Edinburgh wasn't seeing and I wanted to put across that that city was still there, it is this Jekyll and Hyde city, I mean all cities are but it's physically there in Edinburgh, I mean in several ways, number one you've got the new town and the old town New town, a rational construct designed and planned. The old town just higgledy piggledy and chaotic, and they just built wherever they could. So you've got that kind of chaotic and you've got the rational. But also, in this sense, at the, the centre of the city, you're not going to see much in the way of poverty because all the poor people live in the schemes that ring the city, but mm. at a distance from the, from the city centre. What about crime? Because in the short
0: story, there's his character, Jack Mal Holland, who's a gangster. Is there a sort of Edinburgh Mafia?
1: in? There's never been a Mr. Big in Edinburgh, as far as I know. There have been some Mr. Smalls. Mm. It's not a big enough city to have a Cray type. I mean, there are kind of, you know, it's this dodgy people around.
0: Yeah. And... Just to, about the, the map, you, I didn't know you lived in France for six years. Yeah. But that sort of reminds me of Joyce living in Trieste, but writing about Dublin.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, I came from that. I'd studied Joyce at, at university, and also I was aware of Scottish writers who had left. I mean, Robert Louis Stevenson had left Scotland early on in his life. Uh, Muriel Spark, who I did my PhD on at Edinburgh, had left. Lots of Scottish writers had felt the need to leave Scotland to create themselves, to mm. find themselves, or to write about the place. And I mean, it, was, it, was, it wasn't that. It wasn't a conscious decision like that. And the terrifying thing was then moving back, wondering if I could still write about Edinburgh sure. once I was living there.
0: Yeah.
1: Thankfully, it was OK.
0: Let's have another extract from the Death Watch Journal. In this one, both William and Thomas are running
2: out of time. Before entering the condemned cell, Scott shared a few words with the warder he was replacing, then studied the previous entries in the Death Watch Journal. Telfer was waiting for him with a thin smile. "'He had lost colour from his face, as happened to all inmates. "'It wasn't just the diet and the rationing of sunlight and fresh air, "'because it happened to those who worked inside the prison walls, too. "'This was a place where you became aware of how fragile and passing things were. "'The things most people took for granted "'were thrown into sharp relief by their very absence, "'and that sapped the spirit.' "'You've heard?' the prisoner asked. Have I? Judging by the look in your face, Monday morning before half the prison's awake. There was a slight tremor running through William Telfer, which hadn't been there before. Will you stand beside me, Thomas? It's not my usual shift. I'd like you to be there, if you think you can manage. A friendly face and all that there's always the chance of a last-minute reprieve. Like in Hollywood, <laughs> Telfer gave a snort. Maybe if you were to tell them about Jack Mulholland. Bloody hell, Thomas, who have you been up to? I've been digging. There must be things you know. If you gave those to the police, you remember who Jack Mulholland is, eh? The guy who grew up learning to use a razor on anyone who crossed him. Was he ever put away for it? No. Your lot could never touch him.
0: That's an extract from the Death Watch Journal by Ian Ranking. And actually, I was just thinking, listening to that, that's the point at which Scott does something that he could be sacked for, really. He surely should not be suggesting to the condemned man that maybe he could get out of it if he spoke about X, Y or Z.
1: In modern parlance, he's been on a journey... Mm. during the course of this story. And he's sort of come to the conclusion that saving a man's life who he believes to be innocent is probably more important than his job. Yeah. And that's a big step for him to take, mm. you know, because it could mean the end of his relationship as well. It could mean the end of his marriage if he's losing his job because things are a bit shaky at home as, as it is. So, yeah. It, um, it's also I, kind of a terrible thing
0: to do to Telfer because <coughs> Telfer, who doesn't see that there's any real way out for him, might have a spark of hope given to him that, is pointless.
1: It's true. I think our heroic prison warder is at the end of his tether he doesn't know what else he can yeah. do unless he persuades this guy to start telling what he thinks is the truth and maybe grassing up his gangland mates and people he's worked for to get himself a reprieve or to get himself a lesser sentence. So he's, he's clutching at straws. Hmm. You mentioned that you live near
0: Alexander McCall Smith and J.K. Rowling used to live at the end of your street so do you think it's a particularly conducive area? It's strange, writers. isn't it? It's kind of strange. Yeah. It's kind of strange. Writer's block, you called it. Well <laughs> that someone
1: called it that in a letter to the Scotsman years okay. ago. They said it's a writer's block. Yeah. But I, I moved into that neighbourhood 14 years ago. I moved into that street. A neighbour came round to say hello and said, "Oh, you know, you're not the only writer in the street." I went, "Well, who else is here?" He said, "Oh, Alexander McCall Smith lives two houses away." Mm. I thought, I, I don't think I'd met him at that time. I'd read one of his children's books to my son Jack, but I don't think I'd met Sandy McCall Smith at that time. So that was just a coincidence. And then it turned out that Joe Rowling was living at the top of the street and turned left. She's now moved across town. Mm. And there were very odd occasions when all three of us would be in a cafe at the same time. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the Algonquin. No. We would be talking about the weather or. Well, I imagine travel.
0: you'd be writing because one of the things about you is, and I very much admire this, is you write a lot. Uh, I have a note here saying that you deliberately won't look out of a nice view of your house, that you have brick walls because you don't want to be distracted. Yeah. Now, I don't know, I'm not going to ask you as banal a question as what's your word count, but
1: I think it must be quite high. You must, I mean, you, you really managed to I, write. I don't do a word count. I, don't, I, I never do a word count. I mean, I do as much as I, I, I feel like doing on any particular day, but I do try and write every single day when I'm working on a book. Mm. But I'm also a very lazy writer compared to someone like Alexander McCall Smith, who does write, I think, literally every day. He goes on holiday, he writes. He's on a train, he writes. He's on a plane, he writes. No, I don't. I have to kind of I grind this stuff out. It's quite painful sometimes writing this stuff and the first draft tends to be written very quickly so the first draft will be written in about 40 days Mm. writing something every day and it'll be kind of rough and skeletal uh, but there's, there's something there, there's a story there that wants to be told that's fine, I can then fix it second, third, fourth drafts I can fix it and my wife will see it and she'll say I don't think that works I think you should change this and you know, by the time my publisher sees it, it's in pretty good nick.
0: I like the thing but, you said earlier. That's on. the way I, I tend to write as well, is that you don't know exactly what's going to happen.
1: Very at, few, at precious few it. crime writers do. I yeah. mean, I find the majority of crime writers I've interviewed or spoken with say we just make up as we go along. But crime, you might expect, yeah, everybody because does. there's a
0: whodunit element to it, that that would be meticulously worked it, out no,
1: Readers who don't know, they, they reckon it must be like a crossword puzzle. Mm. You know, you've know, you got the grid, and you fill in the answers, and then you do the clues. In other words, you know the ending before you start. I don't know whodunit until I start writing the book, because that's how I find out whodunit.
0: That must, in a way, be one reason to carry on writing.
1: Yeah, and it's one reason not to overthink these things, just yeah. to sit down and start work. And often when I have overthought it and I think, OK, I know what's going on here, I don't feel like writing the book. Right. You know, I don't, I can't be bothered now. I know what happens in this yeah. book. Or else the book has a different idea. I was going to write three books within the Rebus series, all featuring the same MSP, member of the Scottish Parliament. By 50 pages into book one of that, he was dead. Right. So that was the end of that project. Yeah. And I didn't know who killed him or why.
0: While we're talking about writing, your next object is a book by... I'm going to call him the godfather of Scottish crime writing. Would that be
1: correct? Well, we would call him that. I mean, Scottish crime writers would call him that. Whether he'd be happy with that, he probably would be happy with that. I mean, William McIlvaney, the one I brought along, Doherty, isn't a crime novel per se... But he was a guy who kind of made it okay for me to write crime fiction. right? Because this novel, Docker it says in the front, winner of the 1975 Whitbread Award for Fiction. He was a literary novelist mm. who then just happened to turn his hand to crime fiction. With Laidlaw. Books. A character called Laidlaw, who was a cop in Glasgow. And so 1985, he came to the Edinburgh Book Festival. I was 25 and I was writing the first Rebus book. And I went up to him with this tatty paperback, which cost me all of £2.50, Doherty, and I said, will you sign this for me? I'm writing something that's a bit like Laidlaw, but set in Edinburgh, and I'll show it to you. So on the title page it says, For Ian, good luck with the Edinburgh Laidlaw, huh. best wishes, Willie McOvaney. Brilliant. That's and great. so that, that was before the first... Uh, the first Reba's novel? Yeah, way right. before it was first published. OK. So that was lovely, and he was a real inspiration to a lot of us because he was writing proper serious books with big serious themes, writing them beautifully but within the crime genre. Willie McOvaney was very good at these kind of hard-bitten men who life was trying to grind down and they were stubborn and they, they didn't want life to grind them down. Mm. Um, and he just kept getting up again. He did write a very successful book about a boxer, which was The Hard Man, a film with Liam Neeson, I think. What about um, the...
0: You say that he made it OK for you to write crime fiction. Was there also a sort of different issue, which is the spectre of Laidlaw? How do I make Rebus different from Laidlaw?
1: Laidlaw is philosophical. He reads very heavy books of philosophy. Mm. And I thought, well, that ain't my guy. Mm. My guy's not going to do that. In fact, in the first couple of Rebus books, Rebus is much more cerebral than he later became. I thought, what did loner existential cops listen to? Mm. Jazz and classical. So Mm. in the first Rebus novel, he's listening to Radio 3 in the car. And I thought, I don't know anything about jazz and classical. So why (laughs) don't I just give him my musical taste and he can listen to stuff from the 60s and 70s. So he becomes this more basic character, not quite as cerebral as he could have become. But there was that. There was a fact that Glasgow there and Edinburgh a, are very is, different places as well.
0: There was a notion of that, though, with the detective, that often he, and it tends yeah. to be a he, is someone who's, you know, got a psychological dark side but also a cerebral side. You know, you very rarely get one who's straightforwardly... Just a bloke who happens to be good at solving things.
1: Yeah, I know it's true. Actually, it's true. They've all got that kind of slightly sensitive side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know,
0: I know. Um, but where does that start? Does that start with Laidlaw? Do you no, think? No, I
1: think that starts way back. I mean, maybe like, with Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, let's think of Holmes playing his fiddle, yeah, uh, and taking his laudanum or whatever. Yes, uh, and being a bit of an ace Yes, and it's a and, sort of intellectual, yeah, thing. He, I mean, it, the, for him, the intellectual puzzle keeps him busy mm. because he, he seems to be a man who, who has an endless supply of money. Mm. Um, so, he's one of these kind of people who just tinkers, mm. as a lot of English uh, uh, characters in crime fiction did. You know, Miss Marple tinkers with crime. Mm. She's not making her living from it. Yes, yeah, she's a sort um, of gentlewoman. Yeah, Poirot kind of makes his money from it, but not so as you would notice. Yeah. Whereas I was much more interested in professional cops, people who do this job because it's a job. Mm. So, it was important to me that he would be a cop and not a private eye or someone who just happens to be able to ingratiate himself into a criminal case.
0: Yeah, a real person with a real backstory.
1: Yeah, and I think in early books he wasn't so much. I think in early books, because I didn't really know crime fiction, I didn't really know this guy, he was much more of a cipher. He was a way of telling a story. It It was only after two or three books that I started to go, actually, I'm interested in you as a person. But in
0: the Death Watch Journal, which is a short story, but I really get a sense of that, of a sort of hinterland with all the characters. And actually, in this final extract, we see Thomas... Who's built up this emotional relationship with Bill? He's making a last ditch attempt to help him.
2: At Sochton Prison, he checked the previous entries in the Death Watch journal before walking into Telfer's cell. What news from the outside world? Telfer asked. Scott sat down across the table from him. Telfer had been playing clockwork patience. It hadn't worked out, and he was gathering up the cards. You should tell them everything you know about Jack Mulholland, Scott said. It's the only way to save your neck. He watched the prisoner slowly shake his head, eyes on the cards as he shuffled them. The radio in your flat was turned up loud so no one would hear anything. The marks on her neck could have been made by someone wearing a lot of rings rather than just one. Telfer stopped shuffling. You've been busy he stated. A detective called Gavin Hunter tried warning me off. Hunter's a bad bugger. Is he in Mulholland's pocket? I'm beginning to think half the city is. You used your charm on a woman in the planning department, getting titbits you could hand to him, and now they're going to hang you for something you didn't do. But everyone says I did do it, Thomas. Everyone except you. I can't help you if you won't help yourself. Telfer nodded and started dealing out two hands of cards. Let's play some poker, he said. Stakes can be as high as you like, seeing how I've no actual money. So instead they played for matchsticks. Matchsticks the condemned man wouldn't be allowed to keep lest he do himself some injury. Um, One of the things that strikes me, because
0: you mentioned deconstruction and that kind of thing before, is, of course, there's a novel within this in the sense that the journal itself is the story of Telfer. Am I right in saying that he kind of stops writing that? Because there's a sense in which he's thinking these things about the prisoner but not writing them down. And then towards the end of the story, the journal itself seems to vanish when he kind of can't fit
1: the complexity of his thoughts into that anymore. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean there's information held back from the reader or the listener. You want them to do some of the work for you. Mm. I think trust, you know, the reader or trust the listener to put in the bits of the world that you're hinting at but you don't necessarily have to spell it out for them. Mm. It's something that, you know, publishers sometimes are reluctant to do. And novelists sometimes are reluctant to do. You put in far too much information. Mm. I've just been rereading some of Muriel Sparks' books, Primus Jean Brodie, etc. What she leaves out is extraordinary. Mm. And it means she's got these very condensed books that are almost like poems. And you're having to make up your own mind as a reader as to what's actually going on here or what is the moral of this story. You know, I do like readers' stuff to, to do a little bit of work or listeners' stuff to, to do a little bit of work. And that means they become much more involved. They become the detective themselves or they become like the figure of the novelist. Mm. We're all trying to find answers to big questions.
0: Your last item is a personal one. Yeah. It's a photograph, a really lovely photograph of your boys, I assume.
1: This obviously dates from when we lived in France because they're pretty young. They're now 25 and 23. In fact, I did look for a photograph that my wife Miranda was in with them as well, but I couldn't find one, so I've come along with this. This is one of the many photos that sits in my uh, office usually. Uh, How old are they there? Then? Well, there they'd be, I guess, something like seven and five, or no, six and four, maybe. And their names are well. This Jack is the older one, and Kit is a younger one. Mm-hmm. And lovely boys. Kit is. Good. I don't know if you can tell from that photograph or not. He's got special needs. He's. Uh, I can't. He's, you he's, tell from he's that. quite. He's quite severely disabled. He can't walk. He can't talk. He can't feed himself. He can't dress himself.
0: Okay.
1: He was born in France, so we went through all this stuff with French specialists. And I mean, my French wasn't up to it. Miranda's French was barely up to dealing with medical specialists telling you what's wrong with your kid. And so he was part of the reason why we moved back to the UK and part of the reason why the Rebus books got quite dark and Mm. quite potent for a while as well, because I was channeling a lot of the stuff I was feeling and going through and giving it to my character as a way of earthing it as a kind of catharsis. Mm. So he lives in a facility that's near us in Edinburgh, a 20 minute walk away. And Mm. Jack, our oldest son, lives at home at the moment. Talk a
0: little bit more about that frustration. Do you think, did it help? Did it get you through it? Are you less frustrated and angry about that situation now?
1: In some ways, I mean, I was quite horrible at Erebus. I about Black and Blue and The Hanging Garden. Those were the two books I was writing at the time when Kit was being diagnosed. And in Black and Blue, I think I pretty much take him down to his lowest point where he's having a, f- a needless fist fight with his best friend and he collapsed on the ground. And then the very next book, the first thing I do is put his daughter in a wheelchair. Right. She's hit by a hit-and-run driver. And that's because we'd learned that Kit might never walk. And so I just thought, right, you're going to have to go through what I've gone through. I mean, the obvious question is, how much
0: is Rebus an alter ego?
1: Well, you... I wouldn't have said very much. I often think of him as the big brother I never quite had. Mm. I mean, he is an older generation than me, and he smokes and I've never smoked. And his philosophy of life isn't necessarily mine. But he comes from the same village as me. He grew up in the same sort of circumstances. And he shares my taste in music. And, yeah, I mean, where else does he come from? Mm. I mean, all your characters come from inside your head. They're Mm. in these little compartments in your head. And so he's obviously part of me. So what are you doing next? What are you writing now? Oh, man. Well, between now and New Year, I've got to get an idea for a book. Right. I have promised my publisher another Rebus book, and I've promised it by June next year. Mm. So sometime between now and June, I've got to get an idea, sit down facing a blank wall... And start writing. Okay, sounds horrific. No pressure.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm sure you're going to come up with it. Thank you very much, Ian Rankin.
1: Thank you.
2: Also from BBC Audio, Resistance, an apocalyptic Radio 4 drama written by Val McDermott, where a mystery illness that emerges in a music festival turns out to be much, much worse.
3: We had no idea at the time but this was where the end began with Northumberland readying itself for the open-air event of the season. The programme ranged from death metal to Mozart micro-opera. But it wasn't all fun and games. For some people, people like me for instance, solstice meant work. The artistes arrived from all around the globe, trailing their entourages in the wake, the catering crews and stallholders prepared to make a killing from punters who'd been drinking too much, taking questionable drugs, eating unwisely and engaging in regrettable sex. Then there were the journalists, like me, looking for the story, whatever passes for a story in a post-factual world. And really, if you weren't working, who would actually want to be there? spending a weekend in the rain without adequate sanitation in a farmer's field miles from the nearest hot bath
2: and that was Pope getting
3: assorted for solstice now oh, turn that off jamie it's bad enough that i've got to spend the weekend there without having to listen to that pillock Zoe, <laughs> most people would kill
2: for your job this weekend getting paid to hang out with the stars best view
3: in the house yeah right mm. You'll get a better view here on the sofa with the kids. Plus, you'll be dry. Oh, Jimmy! Remember when I used to do real stories?
2: <laughs> I remember. At least celebrity fluff doesn't obsess you the way investigative journalism used to. It
3: obsessed me, as you put it, because it mattered. Have you seen my power monkey? It's
2: charging in the kitchen. I plugged it in earlier. Oh. Oh,
3: thank you. I'll miss you
2: guys. <laughs> you'll, you'll forget we exist as soon as you walk through the door. <laughs>
3: you'll forget me more like. Boys weekend, that's what you three are looking forward to. Pizzas and pop and gaming and gloating because you're not knee-deep in solstice mud.
2: <laughs> well, There might be a bit of that. Will you see Sam and Lisa?
3: Always. I've already bagged the back of their van as my office.
2: From a number one best-selling author, this original drama envisages a nightmare scenario that seems only too credible in our modern age. Available now to download and own from Audible, iTunes and Kobo.